Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Nexus Pro. Nexus Pro is an annual or monthly subscription where members get exclusive writing, podcasts, and invites to members-only Zoom gatherings. You can find info on how to join and support the podcast at nexuslabs.online. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Nexus Podcast. Episode 43 is a conversation with Scott Ellison, an advisor, investor, and consultant for startup founders in the built environment. We talked about startups, investing, and building businesses, and why the time for innovation in our industry is now. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast, episode 43. All right, Scott, welcome to the Nexus Podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Certainly. Uh, Scott Ellison. Uh, I live in the San Francisco, Silicon Valley Bay area. Although I guess that doesn't matter these days so much. Hopefully we're getting back to that soon where geography will be at least uh, one factor in business and investing and, and innovation. Um, I started out out of undergrad working like uh, thousands of others in uh, strategy consulting, great training ground early on, had an opportunity to go to a young growth equity firm, spent a number of years there had the flexibility that I, I really appreciate to, uh, to actually take off. And I, I traveled the world from uh, Mongolia to Antarctica in many places with my fly rod and fly gear in the bottom of my bag. So I'm, one of the things I love doing when uh, my adventures these days are, are my three young kids, but anytime I can get away, I like to get out to a trout stream or some other uh, form of fly fishing. So did that from the flats in Venezuela to the jungles in the uh, Amazon and a bunch of other spots. Wow. Came back and I did some uh, public company investing for a while and then had a chance at the end of 2016, I just lost conviction in which direction the markets were going to go for a variety of reasons that those of us who lived through it probably understand. But I had shortly thereafter an opportunity, a friend of the family introduced me to one of the Tesla co-founders who was developing a new platform, bringing e-propulsion to class six or eight vehicles. So hmm. not the sexiest part of the transportation continuum, but one that has a big impact, obviously, on yeah. a carbon footprint. So I spent about six months with him just working on a variety of different things. And what that kindled for me was it, it reminded me of my personal passion and where that was, which is uh, startups, early stage companies and places where innovation is happening, places where it's the purest form of business, I think. You know, you make a decision on Monday and by Friday, you know, if you're brilliant or, or brain dead, right? And then you get to make another decision the next Monday to either correct it or double down. So I've had the good fortune to be able to work with a number of entrepreneurs in startups. And I should also mention that, you know, before I went off to university and you know, fancy consulting and, and investing. I have a blue collar background, a bunch of uncles who were general contractors. Uh, I worked in a hardware store that paid part of my college. And so I've always had a connection to the built world as I think about it now, whether it's prop tech, construction tech, any of the other sectors that are in and around that. 
because of some things, obviously, we can get into in, in terms of talking about trends. Wasn't sure how that part of my life fit in with the other part until the last few years where I've really seen a number of trends come together in such a way that I think the next decade is going to be very different from the last two decades. So I'll uh, stop filibustering on that one question, and hopefully that gives you a sense for my background. No, you and I have talked before, and that helped. That actually provided some context I, I didn't know about. So thank you for that. So I want to, so obviously we're going to talk about innovation and, and startups and potentially some investing here today. Um, you mentioned the next decade comparing to the last couple decades. So now is when I ask my favorite question, which the last time you and I talked, <laughs> uh, Ben from Keyframe uh, kind of threw some shade at my favorite question. But I'm going to ask it anyway, because I think it's valuable. You know, why is technology and buildings behind? And, and I think we should add behind its potential to appease Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love contrarian discussions. And uh, what James is, is referencing was actually one of the, do you call it members calls? Yeah, uh, yeah Nexus. With Nexus uh, that I think are really fantastic and are doing an, a, a great service for the sector. Just in terms of, we were talking about this before you press record, but in terms of providing a forum in which people who wouldn't naturally uh, connect with each other just because they're spread out geographically, or, or maybe once did pre-pandemic at one or two shows a year and you know had a coffee or a beer. This is a, a forum in which people can do that without jumping on a flight and going through you know the taxation of all of that time just to get to a show. So I think it's fantastic. But yeah, so Ben was, was I, I think, playing the devil's advocate to the question, okay, why PropTech, why Contech? And, and I, I like that because I think it's important to ask. Um, I, I think you could give just about anyone with a few brain cells to rub together a few articles on where the built world is in terms of adoption and use of technology. And within a few hours, they'd come back and say, wow, there's an amazing opportunity for introducing innovation in this sector. And why is it 20 years behind? And why aren't they doing this? And why aren't they doing that? And you know, why, why are buildings still stuck at level one or two of the OSI stack in many cases? So that part is not interesting to me necessarily. I mean, that's, that's really obvious, right? But the question is not only you know, why that is, but for me, even more importantly, will that change? Hmm. If we're having this discussion in 2031, are we basically saying the same thing? Um, Now, I obviously have a thesis as to why that won't be the case and why I I think the next decade will be the decade of built tech. And we can go into that, but I think you have to be intellectually honest and say, you know, well, maybe there's just something structurally about these sectors that make them allergic to technology or innovation. So I, in terms of the question, you know, why has there been a lag perhaps, or why has the sector not lived up to, or not taken as full advantage of technology as, as maybe others have? There are a number of reasons for that, but I would actually refer people, if they haven't listened to it, to Joe, and Joe, apologies if I uh, massacre your name, but uh, Gasperdoni. at uh, Montgomery as a podcast you did with him, I think three or four months ago, in which he does a terrific job of breaking down some of the financial incentives and motivations 
In that case, particularly around building owners, landowners. So specifically on the prop tech, there are similar trends, I think, uh, in the construction world as well. But all of those, I think, are important to really understand because there's a mentality, at least in Silicon Valley, to say, hey, we're just going to run in like a bull in the china shop and disrupt, right? Yeah. Disrupt, disrupt, disrupt if you're a startup. <laughs> and if you do that in this sector, you're just going to be one of a number of other companies off on the side of the road in a ditch. This sector, all of, you know, built world and built tech, I think really demands, yes, disrupt, but also respect certain things. And, and the respect is just fundamental motivations, like a lot of the financial dynamics that, that you and Joe touched on. Totally. What would be some other things to, that you feel like people don't necessarily respect when they're jumping into disrupt? Well, another driver, frankly, of maybe why the sector has been a couple of decades behind has just changed in the past 12 months. And that is, if you were a landowner, property manager, anybody related to, and, and specifically commercial space, but there are trends obviously in multifamily and single family housing as well. But if you're someone who whose life was oriented around commercial space and leasing it out and striking tenure leases or you know maybe sometimes slightly shorter than that you never had to answer even ask the question much less answer it uh, why do people have to come into our buildings <laughs> um, and you know we can talk about whether there's going to be a you know a pandemic snapback and there's certainly those who predict everyone's just going to rush back into the same way of doing things. And maybe that's true in some cases and to some extent, but the fact that the pandemic has gone on as long as it has and the world. Yeah. I mean, this past year has been really challenging on a number of fronts, but the world hasn't fallen apart. We've all figured out a way to actually do our work right more or less. And so going forward, I think you're going to have to, as anybody in the world of commercial real estate, whose job really is to, to create these spaces for people to work in, you're going to have to ask like first principle questions that you didn't have to before. Um, why is it that Steve or Amir or Amy or you know this team at a company needs to come into the office? Maybe they don't. And if they don't, maybe they won't. Now, we can talk about all the reasons why they need to, but I think that dynamic is going to be really interesting to watch over the next decade also. Yeah, I often think about, well, so when I'm teaching the foundations course, talk about the connection to the top line or connection to the business value that you're creating is a part that I feel like when you're, you're coming in to disrupt, you often focus on the technology, right? You're, you have this disruptive technology. It's better than that other technology that's in the buildings now. And so therefore I'm going to disrupt things, but that's not always, I basically tell people to start with the stakeholders, you know, who basically who first, and then what does it mean to them to begin with? Cool. It's another uh, common and I think lauded prize mentality in the startup world that, this kind of field of dreams concept. If, if you're brilliant enough and your product's brilliant enough and you create something that, you know, they will come. that the world will just beat a path to your door and realize how brilliant you are, right? And want to buy your stuff. And, and that's true in certain cases. 
theoretically it can even be true in the built world, but only in very, you know, fringe cases, you know, the real tail cases. And if you want to be an entrepreneur in this space, it's, you know, it's back to the future. It's back to, we were talking about before, but you're far better off taking a playbook from enterprise software in the eighties, you know, how companies were built early on in the late eighties, early nineties, than you are taking the playbook from uh, tech Twitter today. It's not to disparage that because there's a ton of really great insight on, mm -hmm. and I just use that as shorthand, you know for what people, the conventional wisdom as to what you should be doing as you build a company now. But it's going to send you in the wrong direction in some cases. One of, you know, one of the things being what you just mentioned, this sector is, it, it's far more important to be great at product development and marketing and sales and, and listening, right? Listening to your customer than it is to be focused on what, whatever technology it is that you're developing. Totally. So what is that playbook from the 80s? For those of us that were uh, maybe born in the 80s and might yeah. not know the, the 80s. Yeah. History books for most of us, but yeah. um, I mean, I, it's shorthand to me for kind of a back to basics business building, right? Which is there are businesses now that are starting in, in the tech world that go from zero to unicorn in 12 months. I mean, we've just had one. I'm sure a bunch of people have participated in, in Clubhouse and, and it's a really interesting concept and, you know, I think has legs and, and is going to be an, an interesting contributor to all of our discussions over time. With that said, if your vision is to go zero to unicorn in 12 months in the built world, it's just I guess I want to invest in you retrospectively, right? Um, uh, because there probably will be some examples of that, but it's far more important to just think of who's my customer, what am I selling to? I mean, these are really simple, you know, almost color by number entrepreneurial things. And to have the patience to say, you know, if I'm a 20 something Gen Z and I have a bunch of entrepreneur friends, I'm not going to be able to go to cocktail parties in 18 months, likely, and match stories, right, about how I just raised a Series C at X hundreds of millions of dollars right. valuation. But what I might be able to do is seven years from now, be talking about a really interesting sustainable business that I've built with my team. While my friend who went zero to Series C in, in nine months is now on their third startup, you know, in the interim while I was building the company. So it just takes, I think it takes a different mentality. It takes a different personality. Somebody who, for whatever reason, is passionate about this space. That's really important. I don't think you need to have a ton of experience in the space necessarily, but you better be passionate about it and has patience to look at the, you know, the long game. Totally. Yeah, loving the problem is a definite requirement in this space because the problem is thick. <laughs> uh, so, and I mean, you're going through it yourself with building your platform and your community. Yep, yep totally. I mean, I, we talk uh, every now and then, but you know, I'm not in your head hearing all the challenges and hiccups and problems that are inevitable to any time you're starting something new. And if you don't have that North Star of, I'm really, you know, in your case, whatever it might be, but I'm really fired up about creating this community. You know, 
you're going to flame out after, oh, after yeah. a few months. Totally. Uh, before we dive into investing, I want to ask you about headwaters. So what do you, what do you do every day? Yeah. So, so that's just my uh, LLC. That's kind of an umbrella for me to, you mentioned investing and I make targeted investments. I'm not a, there, there are angels out here in Silicon Valley that, you know, invest in two companies a month and run up big numbers there. But I, uh, I advise early stage companies and, and also do some targeted consulting sort of project work for later stage organizations. On the early stage side, it's just not, I don't think it's appropriate to be, if I were, if I were an entrepreneur, I certainly wouldn't be, you know, paying for consulting services or, you know, anything related to that. But there's an interesting dynamic that's occurred in the space that it's relatively easy. And I say relatively because I'm not saying it's easy, but it's relatively easy to raise that first sort of quarter million, maybe, or, or even a hundred thousand enough to just get, you know, to test out your, your concept and maybe go out and talk to some customers. Right. I won't even call it friends and family because I know a lot more people who don't have friends and family that will just write a check like that than that do, but whatever that initial slug of capital is. And then the next step used to be you raise a series A at, it was somewhere around $3 million, three to five. And you do that after maybe a year. And along with that comes an investor who's taking a board seat and brings a fair amount of resources and connections and perspective on what you should do from there. Not that you have to listen to them on everything, but that resource is immediately available to you. Then as things moved you know, over the last decade and a half, in that three to $5 million range, it became a seed stage investment, right? Yeah. And that had a little bit less support, although that's starting to change. But what was required then to get a Series A round done, the bar on that continued to rise. And now companies are doing pre-seeds and in some cases, even pre-seed one, pre-seed two, or doing a safe slash convertible note and then doing a pre-seed and then doing a seed. And the point being that there ends up being for most companies and particularly in this sector, two to three, maybe even four years between that initial you know, I'm, I'm taking the leap. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I have a really interesting idea. I raised a little bit of money to pay for, you know, whatever food and housing Two, okay. I'm a legit company. I've raised money. I have people on the board. Um, what hasn't changed is that in that time, a lot of really critical decisions that are going to impact where the company is a decade from now are being taken. Right. And so there's an opportunity. And, and I should say the other thing that's happened over the last decade and a half is that some structures have been put in place and distributed that make it easier for companies to say, I'm going to bring on you know, a handful of advisors. I know what I need to give them. I don't have to be given out you know, points of equity that are going to dent my cap table, but I can bring people on that can help and I think it can be in the right case, an entrepreneurial hack. Um, in the wrong case, you know, there's still the dynamic of, of people saying, hey, I'm going to bring on an advisor. And then it turns out they're not helpful at all. But I think they can be in certain cases, even if it turns out that, you know, you could go a month or two where you're not seeing immediate value from someone. And then they make two calls or a couple of connections. And it's just, you know, this massive catalyst for the next stage. Mm-hmm. So you're playing in that between you know, inception to series A 
time frame. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, it can be the case that usually for people who are, you know, getting involved with startups, that's a reasonable time frame and target. It can also be the case, though, that after Series A, even once an, uh, a founder, a CEO has institutional investors on board, that they still want kind of their own sounding board. Because as much as during the dating period for Series A rounds, everyone is uh, you know, in love and it's a, it's a wonderful dynamic, we also know that over time, interest can diverge. So it's helpful for CEOs to continue to have uh sounding board that, you know, they can just test certain ideas off uh, mm. rather than just relying on their board investors. Cool. I just learned a lot. Hopefully other people did too. Uh, uh, so let's dive into uh, like where we're at now. I hate the word prop tech, but investing in technology for buildings, let's say that. I actually like that a lot better. Yeah. So why now? Like, can you just summarize for people that maybe have their sort of head in the sand or head in the mechanical room or a controller somewhere, what's happening in the investment space for building technology right now? Yeah, this gets back to the, um, okay, arguably this sector's two decades behind, but let's ask the question 10 years from now, are we going to be saying the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so my thesis on why I'm spending time in this space starts with this. And the fact that, you know, whether it's an iPhone or an Android, um, so much of our computing power is now mobile and can move anywhere and can move with us as we go into the commercial buildings pre-pandemic and certainly uh, post, it's even more acute. Um, but you combine that with the fact that generationally, if you're young Gen X, millennial or Gen Z, which are now not only roughly 50% of the workforce, maybe a little bit more, but as importantly are moving into decision-making roles and will continue to move into decision-making roles. You combine those two dynamics and you have people who are gonna be making decisions and who are going to be, in a lot of cases, dictating sort of how work gets done, right? Even if a Gen Z is not making a work decision necessarily, they're going to be driving a lot of discussion around how we can work and how we should work. And so I just think those two catalysts in particular are going to have a big impact on the sector. Um, it's no longer going to be the case that uh, a senior executive can, can just say, well, that's how we've always done things in this space, right? right. You're going to have people who are now in positions to actually push back and say, well, you know, you may have carried around a stack of paper this high, you know, in a big bag over your shoulder on a construction site or, or, you know, in a building when you were coming up, but that's just not the efficient way to do it. And there are much better ways to work. When you combine that with the other dynamic that on the money side, there are, it's a small number still, um, but there are companies who in the built world tech that have had exits. Hmm. You know, we know the names Plan Grid in the Bay Area is probably the best known, right? But, you know, Econix and there's a, I'd say probably a dozen or so where uh, entrepreneurs have made enough money in an exit that they can start doing angel investing. Hmm. Um, that's helpful at that earlier stage that I was describing before. And maybe even more importantly, there are now a dozen or so venture firms who have a mandate from their bosses, you know, the limited partners who invest in their funds to focus on these sectors and to bring a mentality to really understand the dynamics that we're just talking about. 
And the reason that's important, just as a side note, is that if you have an investor at, say, a traditional Silicon Valley firm who is on six boards, five of them are consumer SaaS or enterprise SaaS, and then a buddy of theirs made this introduction to this really interesting prop tech company, and they said, all right, I'll invest. Their tendency is going to be to come into board meetings and have the mindset of, what is required to be successful in that other category of companies that I was describing. And so there'd be a natural tendency to say, well, hold on a second. Like, are we making the right decisions here? It doesn't seem like we're growing a lot. All my other companies are talking about MRR and ARR and, you know, all these other stats. Now that's a bit of a caricature, of course, but I have heard that from a couple of companies, actually, um, that they wrestle a bit with that. So getting back to the point about the prop tech or built world focused funds, those uh, investors, those partners understand the dynamics and know what to look for. And I think can add value in more powerful ways for companies in this space. You also mentioned the accelerated focus on the occupant that you talked about earlier. So that's, it seems like driving investment in this space as well these days. I think so. I mean, uh, I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball that's any better than any, anyone else's, but property owners and landowners are certainly going to have to wrestle with this question. Why do people need to come into the office? And there are some reasons for that. And, and there are some use case, a, a number of use cases for that, you know, beyond just the socializing, which, which is important. But regardless, uh, you're going to have to, over the next few years, think about that. Yeah. And as importantly, when people come into the office, you know, how easy are we making it for them to seamlessly pick up work that maybe they did at home on Monday and now they're in the office on Tuesday? Mm-hmm. And how easy do we make it for them? You know, even things like parking garages and elevators and all these things that nobody ever really gave a lot of thought to. As a building owner, I think you're going to have to pay a bit more attention to that because people aren't going to have the same level of patience for this parking garage thing takes forever and it's a pain in the neck. And then I get in and, you know, two thirds of the elevators are broken like they always are, you know, so stuff like that. I think people are really going to have to pay attention to, I, I suspect. Totally. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. What about sustainability? Do you see that driving change, driving investment? Yeah, I think most people uh, watching or listening to this will know the stats about the impact that the built world has on carbon emissions and the footprint and sustainability. And while I don't put on my, you know, I'm focused on sustainability hat every day, it's an interest of mine. I think it's, it's a really important trend. And I think that just by virtue of doing the things that need to be done in the built world, 
for, for innovation, you almost as a, even a first order effect are having an impact on sustainability issues. And it's also true, I think, you know, when you consider Gen Zs and millennials that are coming into the workforce, you're going to get a lot more pressure around, you know, what's the carbon footprint of our building? And this gets back to why should I come into the office? You know, it's, it's a connected and a corollary question that says, okay, when I come into the office, you know, am I being responsible and in line with, you know, my ethics and the way that I want the world to be? Mm -hmm. Totally. So I want to talk about the startups you've seen. So what we've done is we've kind of painted a picture here around, you know, technology being behind uh, us being excited about it, investors being excited about it. And then you're, you're working with a lot of startups. So basically attacking that space. And so I wanted to ask you, like, how do you see startups mess up the disruption? We talked about it a little bit, you know, not catering to the right people. What are other ways you see people come into this space and sort of mess things up? Yeah, I think we've touched on a couple of them, certainly being more tech focused. I'd say that certainly as you begin to build a company out, you should be at the senior levels. At least one of your founders has got to be, you know, two thirds, even 80% of the time thinking about the customer, thinking about the product that you're offering to the customer, what they want. And as importantly, how that's solving a specific problem or a specific I'll say a set of problems, but you want to keep it constrained, especially at first, right? Because you're talking to people who, one of the other dynamics in the sector is, is that they're thin margins, as we all know, for the most part. And so, at, at least from an operating budget. Um, and so you're talking to people who don't have just money to throw around and spend on uh, a variety of projects that may or may not uh, turn into something that's valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I'd say the biggest challenge for entrepreneurs is to constantly come back to that touchstone of what does the customer want and why are we solving a problem for them that nobody else can for the same cost? I mean, it's, it sounds so simple and it, in some respects, I guess it is. It's simple conceptually, but in practical terms, in execution, you know, forcing yourself to constantly come back to that, constantly come back to that is it's a challenge. I mean, it, I don't think anybody, you know, nails it hundred percent. How should startups think about the different stakeholders? So you say focus on the customer. I mean, the customer could be the occupant or it could be the facility manager or property manager or building owner. So like, how do you stay focused on one person when technology in a building impacts so many different stakeholders? Yeah. This is a really important question. It's multifaceted. Um, One of the individuals that you've had on your podcast, another individual who you've had, who I think is doing some really interesting work. And I've had the good fortune of being a sounding board for him as he built the company over the last 18 months or so. uh, Troy Harvey at Passive Logic said to me in one of the first conversations that really opened my eyes um, when I, like I think a lot of people were at first glance skeptical about, you know, building automation, building controls, uh, startup. He really laid out, I I think, this whole challenge uh, when he said, you know, we had a lot of success early on selling to the boardroom because we have this sexy technology and this really interesting approach. But he said what we had to really internalized was the importance of selling also to the boiler room. 
Mm-hmm. And this, this concept, and I think it's applicable across the built world, you know, the same is true in construction technology, for example, you got to, yes, you have to sell the innovation groups, perhaps, but you also better make sure that you're either selling or thinking about in building your products for the people who are actually going to use it. Um, because the dynamics in this space are such that it's relatively easy for the end user to just mothball your product if they want to. Mm. Even if someone way up the chain thinks it's amazing and plays golf with the founder of this startup. Yeah. Right. Definitely. So it's another one of the challenges in the space, um, you know, to really think about how do we sell at different levels and how do we do that effectively? Totally. So we just talk about sort of pitching to the customer. How about pitching to investors? So I would imagine, and there's several investors in the pro community that I feel like understand this space, but I think the general investor community, the people throwing money at startups might not understand the dynamics of this. Is that a, is that a fair assumption? Might not understand the dynamics of the built environment. So how do startup founders, like how should they think about going to pitch people that just don't know what it's like here? Yeah, I mean, in addition to Ben and you know Travis, Ben at Keyframe and Travis and Heather at uh, Building Ventures, who are doing a great job. There are, as I mentioned before, a dozen or so firms that have the mandate to invest in this space, both here in the U.S. and and I would also note in Europe. I mean, there in the last twelve months, there have been at least two funds that I know of that have raised uh, more than a hundred million euros. So arguably, actually, even more money than a lot of the prop tech firms in the U.S. are raising, and. Uh, you know, all of that has been with the, with the mandate that over the next decade, over the course of the, the fund that they've raised, they're going to be looking for opportunity for innovation in this space. Um, there are a handful of startups who have successfully raised capital from more of the traditional route. Uh, open space did, you know, there've been others in the past, uh, open spaces in uh, construction technology, but I was thinking through this question earlier because I knew it would come up. And I think there's an opportunity even for built world startups to do their A and maybe even their B with firms who really understand this space, while at the same time, not necessarily eliminating some of the maybe, you know, well-known glamorous firms. And I say that because a lot of the well-known glamorous firms, I mean, we could talk about, uh, you know, names that everyone knows, Sequoia and Andreessen, uh, Horowitz and, and others on Sand Hill. Uh, Kleiner's doing that as well. And, and a bunch of others, not to name check anyone, um, have raised pools of capital to invest in Series B, Series C, Series D companies. And so, uh, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that you might be best off as an entrepreneur bringing on one of these firms, you know, in the prop tech world that really understand the dynamics that you're facing early on and being a partner with them as you build to a point where you've reached escape velocity as a startup and then can bring in big checks from others who long-term will benefit you in addition to your prop tech investors in terms of just, you know, recruiting and, you know, eventually an IPO or other exit options. Totally. So, But I would say, holding that aside, in any discussion that I had with a potential investor, I'd want to have some sort of conversation prompt, 
some sort of slide in my deck um, that it wasn't even obvious this was the point of the slide uh-huh. that gave me a sense for whether they understand the dynamics in this sector. Hmm. Um, one of the companies I'm working with, we were just yesterday finalizing a deck for their pre-seed. And there's a, a slide in their deck, um, one part of which is to test some of that. Hmm. Interesting. Now, it comes as part of a broader discussion, uh-huh. but one piece, one potential benefit of that discussion is going to be a sense for, is this person that I'm talking, specifically this person, and then also potentially their fund, um, do they understand the dynamics? And as importantly for this company, because it's so early, are they really passionate about this space? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So this is uh, the next topic I want to ask you about was we, we brought this up a couple of weeks ago at the pro gathering, what I'm calling the kind of the service provider challenge in this space, which is there's a challenge where a lot of our software companies in prop tech, mostly on sort of the more technical aspects of building optimization, building operations, it, it's difficult right now to get a pure SaaS arrangement, right? A lot of the companies, a lot of software, a lot of technology depends on service providers to sort of prop the solution up to basically fulfill the value proposition. Uh, it's just the way it is. Uh, and so how should people be thinking about that in terms of, I, I guess, how do investors think about it? And then how do I, as a startup, approach this challenge where you, you often need service providers to fulfill that value proposition, but what you're trying to do is build a scalable solution. So there's like this dichotomy going on. So how do you think about that? And I guess, how do you advise startups to think about that? Yeah, I'll touch on that, but there's a related concept that maybe we also want to hit on, which is companies that have hardware, some some yeah. piece of hardware as a, as a fundamental innovation to their business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, well, let's, okay, so let's hold that aside for a second. On the yeah. services side, yeah, I thought we had a really interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago about this. But mm-hmm. first off, as an entrepreneur, I mean, you, you'll hear this, you know, on tech Twitter or wherever else, but it is a really important question to ask, which is, do I want to be a venture scale business? Do I want to create something that is worth a billion dollars? And it seems like an obvious, you know, answer. Well, yeah, of course I want, you know, of course I do. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't, because there are certain, there, there are a number of different things and there are you know, hundreds of podcasts, I'm sure you could find talking about the dynamics around that. But you may, as you really ask that question and dig in, the answer you may come to is, no, I don't. And that doesn't mean that you can't be a successful startup or a successful entrepreneur. Um, And particularly in a space like this, where there's a need for just a lot of creative problem solving that doesn't necessarily bake easily into an algorithm or, you know, or software package initially. Uh, There are a lot of people who have made a great living for, for a long time, actually, in this space, building company in that second category, or even in the first category, I, I would almost say like, that should be your default. And then Unless you're a computer science grad coming out of uh, undergrad and you, you have developed you know, a vision for an algorithm or a layer of the software stack that you can really address uh, and that can scale. 
but it does always come back to scale, right? If your intention is to, is to go try to be a unicorn and be a venture-backed company, you better have something that can scale that over time, you as the individual, as the founder, don't have to be involved in whatever it is, installing, servicing, but you can hire people uh, to do that. Um, I think there's a middle ground also, which is you can start out with services in wherever it is your particular area and then constantly keep your antenna up for, is there something that can scale? Is there a piece of this that I deliver it to my customer and then I don't think about it as much? Like I continue to help them solve problems on a daily basis, new things come up, but there's this other piece that is really adding value, number one. Number two, I don't have to every day be, you know, spending time solving it or, or correcting it. Yeah. This is a piece where I, I think me as like someone that's inside of the industry, looking at all this money being raised, right. And being thrown at the problem. And I know that, and this is probably just a generalization, but I know that there's expectations of scale behind that money usually. And I, I just look at most of the problems that I've solved in my career. And it falls in that category you just talked about, which is like, this is creative problem solving. I just can't imagine a scalable solution for most of what I did, you know, uh, in, in every building I've ever worked in. So it's just something that's on my mind. I just feel like there's a gap between what investors are expecting and what's the reality of the space a lot of times. And, and you're right. There's, there's no shame in building a, a great service-based business. So I, I think- that's I think there's even a thesis, you know, in this space that the best entrepreneurs over the next decade are not going to be the, you know, Stanford computer science, went to Facebook, went to Google, you know, the, and then created this, again, the sort of zero to unicorn in 12 months, but rather are going to be folks who have spent maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 20, 25 years in the sector and really have an appreciation, have, have always had an entrepreneurial mindset, right? And have always been asking why and why can't we do this better, but have a real appreciation for the different pressure points that we've talked about in the sector and who maybe even, you know, don't necessarily sit down and, you know, read a consulting report and see construction is a trillion dollar industry and it's two decades behind or prop tech is this big space and wow, isn't this incredible? And I'm going to go start a company, right? Yeah. Not to denigrate that, but if you take that path, you better make sure you're really filling in, you know, that context that you can only get from being in the space. And, and which is why I say, you know, maybe the entrepreneurs of the next decade are going to be the ones who have already spent time yeah. in some sort of uh, junior management or even senior management role in the sector who realize, okay, I finally, you know, I was on a run and it finally hit me. This is the scalable idea. Now I'm going to go try it, try and make it happen. And that's why I wanted to dig into this with you, Scott, because I think those are our listeners. Those are the people that are listening right now. And I, I if you're listening right now and you're, you're still hearing this, it's, it's on us. It's on you know you guys to transform this. Uh, thanks for that perspective. Yeah. So, all right, let's let's move to wrap up here. We've we've talked a lot about like looking forward to to twenty twenty one. What are you most excited about besides like 
being able to have a beer with somebody. <laughs> what are you excited about in this space for 2021 as we sort of wrap up here? Yeah, that will be nice. And, uh, you know, you're in Colorado, right? Yeah. So maybe there can be a, a Nexus offsite uh, somewhere in a beautiful spot in Colorado at some point where yep. we can all uh, share a beer or, or a coffee. Everybody's looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of skiers and snowboarders in the in the Nexus community. And so I think we're going to, uh, I don't know how I'm going to plan it and put it together as this one-man company, but there needs to be some sort of event next week, the Nexus Ski Summit, Ski Snowboard Summit. Absolutely. Absolutely. But what I'm, you know, it, it, there's a, a natural question that, um, you know, people always ask, okay, so, you know, what are the spaces you think are most interesting? Um, I think anything in and around the built world is interesting and has opportunity for improvement. I mean, you can't uh, walk into pretty much any building in the world without thinking about ways to do the experience related to it better or to reuse the space or to do different things. Um, the thing that excites me is continuing to have the opportunity to work with founders who are really excited, passionate about maybe having found that nugget of, you know, maybe this is something that, that can scale or even, by the way, I think the other feature of PropTech venture firms is that right now they're relatively small um, in the grand scheme of things, meaning most funds are $100 million or less. And what that means is you don't have to have a $10 billion exit or a $5 billion exit or the things that people who are partners in some of the, you know, the, the bright light names, the Sand Hill names um, have to be shooting for because they have billion dollar funds. So you have to return much more than that. So that too is kind of a back to the future moment that these venture firms have smaller funds. And so you don't necessarily, I, I talk about zero to unicorn because that's a, you know, an easy shorthand for what a lot of people would know, but I think there's opportunity for building a number of what I think of as multi-hundred million dollar companies, you know, over the next five to 10 years uh, that are doing some really interesting things. They're scalable, but it doesn't have to be, you know, the entire world is using this in three years. It, it could be this is solving a really important problem, has good economics, and then maybe it's, you know, they're, they're big companies now who are making acquisitions, you know, maybe it's something like that. So interesting. To me, particularly where I spend most of my time on the super early stage side, uh, it's almost always, you know, three quarters, the entrepreneurs. And, and for me, when I'm making decisions, you know, am I going to be able to add value to a company like this? But that's what really excites me is constantly talking to people who are fired up about some concept that maybe I probably I haven't even thought about. Um, or I've thought about it, but almost always not to the depth that right. it needs to be thought about right. um, in order to really build a company. That's awesome. Anything else to add before we wrap up? Uh, this, this is a separate topic and maybe we can have it as a conversation on one of the future Nexus you know, pro calls, but this whole concept of innovation that, that's happening at the hardware level and how companies, how startups think about building a hardware company in a world when hardware is a, you know, I don't know how many letters that is, what's that, eight, 10 letters, but it's a four letter word for most investors. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. yeah we've got to, to circle and back. I think there are yeah. some 
some interesting sort of approaches to that, including I'll just throw out, you know, one idea. I was talking to a company yesterday who's doing really interesting stuff in the elevator vertical transportation space mm-hmm. and has as a component of their solution, a, a hardware piece okay. Um, okay. about setting up dynamic with a customer where you're getting an upfront payment that actually covers the cost of the capital to get the, in their case, a small box uh, installed. So that as a startup, you you can still scale because you don't have to raise venture capital just to pay for your cost of goods sold for that equipment. Hmm. Um, But then in exchange, striking a two-year, three-year contract of which the first X number of months would be free. Hmm. Okay. So you get the box in, the customer, you know, pays for it. They, they almost always have a bigger balance sheet, right? And once they put something in, number one, it's super sticky. Number two, they're not interested in ripping it out either. So there's good alignment there where you can say, maybe after a little testing period, hey, let's, let's set up a two-year, three-year contract. And that's a way in which you can actually have, I mean, I don't even know if this is a term, but, you know, HRR, you know, hardware recurring revenue business model, hmm. um, where you're getting paid for the innovation over time. Hmm. Interesting. I haven't thought about that sort of business model. Most people give away the box and try to have SaaS, right? Yeah. Interesting. Which is fine too, but it, I mean, that runs into a problem, particularly if your cost of goods sold on a box is more than 10 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you have this particular company, you know, their equipment's in the hundreds of dollars per box mm-hmm. and they just got an order for what could be a thousand units um, okay. from a very prominent, you know, entity on the East Coast. So they're like, uh, shit, how do I, how am I going to fulfill that? Right. So, I mean, anybody can do the math in like five seconds, right? And you realize that even if you have the capital because you've raised some money to do that, you don't want to tie up that capital, you know, the thousand times a few hundred dollars on that and then wait for this revenue, this recurring revenue stream to come in over time. You're you're never going to get off the ground. Interesting. Interesting. And if you go to try to raise money to do that, you'll be quickly seeing a lot of, you know, unreturned emails and phone calls from investors. Yeah, and, and there are several companies that I actually charge for the box as well up front. And I've always wondered why that is. And that makes total sense because it doesn't seem like that much until you add it up. Yeah. Well, and arguably it's not actually to the customer. It's not that much. Yeah, right. To, you, not to them. On yeah. their balance sheet. Yeah. But Absolutely. for a startup, it, you know, it can be huge. So Absolutely. Well, cool, Scott. Let's uh, let's wrap this up. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate your uh, having me. There are a number of exceptionally bright people, you know, writing checks in this space that we alluded to before. That anybody who's thinking about, you know, building their company probably already knows. But you know, I, rather than listing names, um, they're out there. If you you know look around, some really s- smart people that are building interesting companies and and you know partnering with with companies at that kind of seed and then beyond. And so it's one of the reasons that, I, as I alluded to, that I'm, I'm bullish on this space, this sector over the next decade. Cool. Thanks again. Here's to, uh, here's to the next, uh, what, do you, what do you call them? Nexus? Uh, pro member gatherings. Pro, yeah. pro member ga- gatherings. Well, great job uh, doing this and uh, 
And here's to grabbing a beer in Colorado with everyone soon. Sounds great. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart buildings industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.